This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. This topic tonight is a challenge. But we will get through it, I think. And, uh, and I hope that you will be blessed by it. Of course, the lecture this evening, it is actually very closely connected with what we discussed last week. Now, you might recall last week we discussed the issue of abortion. We connected the national sin of abortion with what the 20th century postmodern theological relativism has, relativism has brought us. And I'll remind you again that when a society rejects absolutes, as postmodernism has done, when it rejects those absolutes, then you must reject truth. Though the postmodern, the postmodernists, they don't claim that they reject truth. Why? Because to a postmodernist, all truth is relative. You can have your truth. I can have my truth. We have our truth. But to the Christian, we have no such luxury of developing our own truth. Our truth, the truth, is established by the Word of God. Remember, it is built, uh, it, remember that, that the Word of God, divine revelation, is really the only thing that we can know for certain. So the rejection of absolutes is fundamentally built on a rejection of the Word of God. And we talked about that, how there was this time in our 20th century where we rejected the Bible. And I don't want to go so far down the rabbit hole of saying if we kicked it out of the public schools and that was the end. That was just a, a, a symptom of the problem. That's, that's one thing we can point to in history and say, see, this is what happens. But the fact that we, uh, um, the fact that we outlawed or banned, and I do say we because our nation did it, banned the Bible from the public schools was... It's just a, a symbolic of really the national tendency to reject the Word of God. Now, a culture can coast for a certain amount of time in a postmodern philosophy. The, but the culture will eventually find itself in an untenable position. So postmodernism is actually self-defeating. And what do I mean by that? It eventually destroys itself. And in some ways, this actually might be an encouragement. <laughs> it can't last forever. It won't. It doesn't have that, sta that staying power. It doesn't have that stability. And let me illustrate kind of what I mean by this, and I'm going to use the analogy of acid. Now, imagine with me, if you will, that we have a vial of acid. Now, this vial of acid contains the most potent, acid in the world. In fact, this acid will eat through everything to include the vial that it is in. Anything it touches, it dissolves. 
Now, let's say that this acid is so powerful that it eats through its container, and once it dissolves its container, it eats through the counter that it's sitting on, and, on, and then it eats through the floor. And can you see where this goes? It just continues to eat and to destroy. That is postmodernism. It is eating through everything, and nothing is safe. Because you can't say everything is relative if your frame of reference keeps changing. I mean, you can say everything's relative, but if your frame of reference keeps changing, eventually it just shifts and shifts and shifts until you begin to actually eat away at your own philosophy. This is what makes postmodernism so self-defeating. And like I said, in a way, it's not as dangerous as we might think. So, lest we get discouraged by the so-called advancements of the secular agenda, be assured that in time, with postmodern philosophy at the helm, it will eventually turn on itself. And here's a great illustration of this. I want to be careful. I, I don't even know if I'm going to show you my next slide. Well, I will. Does anybody recognize this? It actually cut off some of it. It's a rainbow flag. What do, anybody know what it's called? It's called a pride flag. Some of you spiritual ones were like, no, that's Noah's flag. That's what he flew on the ark, right? Uh, no, this is, uh, this is a rainbow flag. It's a pride flag. Each color, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll stay back here. I'm sorry, I won't make you jump up there and move the camera. <laughs> I'll stay right here. <laughs> they weren't manning the camera. I saw them fluttering as soon as I walked over here. I'll stay put. This pride flag, each color, each strip represents something. And for a while, it seemed to be inclusive of everyone. In fact, if you've not seen the flag, but you've heard the, the alphabet soup, uh, it is L. It was just LGBT. Well, then it became LGBTQ, and then it became well. We can't actually just keep going with the alphabet, so let's do LGBTQ plus, and that just includes everyone. And it became so inclusive. In, in fact, in the pride flag, I think it was 1974 time frame that it was uh, designed. And in the flag, they realized at the time that there were a couple colors that they just could not get to. Uh, pink was one of them, and turquoise was the other. And so they took that out of the flag because the supply chain would not provide them with that material. And now they said, okay, we're just going to use this flag. And this became the pride flag for, for almost 40 years. But as society began to consider what it meant to be inclusive, there were several who said, well, we're not included in that. And honestly, if I were to tell you some of the names of the, the debauchery and the sin of some of these things, it would cause us all to blush. Um, in fact, I was talking to a sailor one day. Uh, this was a couple years ago. And, uh, and, uh, and we were talking about, uh, uh, she says, I just have some problems with my relationship. And, uh, and she said, and you may not know this about me, um, but I am, uh, uh, um, I am, I'm pangender. I said, I, I said, I'm sorry. I, 
I don't know what that means. And she says, well, I, I love anything. <laughs> and it's hard not to sit there and giggle. <laughs> like, I wonder, what do you mean everything? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, literally everything. And you, and you start, and I said, I, I got to be very careful what I go Google now and, uh, and decide, you know, how am I, I going to educate myself? But they, they said it's going to be all-inclusive. Well, there, there became a problem. This didn't include everybody. And so uh, they, um, there was a problem. Can I go to the next slide? Mine, mine, keep, mine keeps coming out. So now here's the current one. And if and you look at this and say, okay, now, and I honestly don't know all the colors and what they represent, but it becomes extremely colorful, but you've got all this, right, where they're trying to capture everyone. But here's where I, I want to just kind of make a, a point about how it, it, it kind of eats away at itself. There's now a disparity amongst the LGBTQ+, where they say, no, wait. We actually aren't all striving for the same thing. And the real conflict now is between lesbian and transgender. And the problem is a transgender, so a female, who says, no, I don't want to be female anymore. I actually think I'm a male. A lesbian says, no, we are supposed to take pride in who we are. And so they don't get along, and they don't like to be on the same flag. And so pretty soon it just begins to deteriorate. deteriorate. And, and if you, if, it is very sad, but you can sit back and you can almost watch the show as it begins to eat away at itself. Why? Because they threw away all absolutes. And now everything goes. And you have movements now that say, okay, well, uh, if, if, if I'm included and love is love, then what about pedophilia? That's just love. And people say, well, no way, that's too far. No, well, who said that's too far? Well, you know, uh, we can do uh, uh, gay marriage, but what about, um, uh, what about polygamy? If love is love, love wins, right? So why can I, why do I have to only marry one? Why can I not marry as many as I want? It eats away at itself. I can't change the slide, so we can move on. <laughs> Thank you. We'll get here in a second. Um, so let me, let me just kind of talk about where we're going to go this evening. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, we read the narrative again. We talked about this last week. We read the narrative of the sixth day of creation. And let me read it again for you. We read it last week, but it is going to be very important for us to consider this evening. And we'll look at this a couple times. It reads like this, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Again, let me read that verse 27 again to you. So God created man in his image, in his own image, in the image of God, 
created he them. I think the order, again, is very important here. And we talked about this last week. Remember, first God created man in his image. And, and again, Moses repeats it. He says, God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him. And then it's after that creation of man that, God, uh, that Moses tells us that male and female are distinct. They're created. The creation of man, the creation of male and female, is the apex of God's creative work. And we saw that he divided that work into two components, male and female. So we understand that male and female have a function. And we saw last week that in our modern culture, we have moved to destroy the creative offspring of the image of God. But now we're going to look tonight at how we have moved to destroy the function, functional component of the human race. Let me, tie, let me explain it, and I'm going to share a quote with you from a man named Daniel Heimbeck, who was an ethicist and a professor at Southeastern Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He was a graduate of the Naval Academy, but he wrote a book entitled True Sexual Morality, Recovering Biblical Standards for a Culture in Crisis. And he wrote this uh, in the late 90s. In the book, Daniel Heimbeck illustrates the path of a culture's complete social collapse. And he does so, he, he has this inverted pyramid. At the bottom of this inverted pyramid, he has sexual morality as the fundamental basis of any self-respecting and ordered society. Now, as I read through this, I want you to remember, those of you who can, remember I said last week, if you can remember the 60s, you probably weren't there, but some of you I know were there. And, uh, and so uh, I want you to remember back to the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. And remember, it really, yeah, there was homosexuality and things like that, but it was really just, hey, whatever goes. And he has this, at the bottom of this inverted pyramid, so as I talk about it, I want you to think about the sexual revolution. He has sexual morality as the fundamental basis of any self-respecting and ordered society. However, as sexual morality gives way to sex without consequences, remember that in the 60s? Sex without consequences. Society then progresses to sex in any form and without commitment to th threatening the sanctity of procreation. And if you remember, that's what happened then after that. They, uh, uh, they legalized abortion and the sanctity of marriage to threatening the sanctity of life to then destroying respect for life, for self, for others, for the community, truth, authority and accountability, to weakening of law government and family life, to family breakdown, divorce, unwed single parenting, gender role confusion, to cohabitation, teen pregnancy, pornography, abortion, and homosexuality, crime, drugs, murder, suicide, violence, poverty, truancy, economic weakness, culminating in social collapse, or the abandonment, really, of self-discipline. Our culture has no discipline anymore. What we have allowed is culture to just have its own way. And I'm reminded of the passage in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 when the, when the flood, where if you recall that God looks down at the earth and he sees that it is corrupt. And if you were to go back and look at that passage... In fact, I think it would help us to look at how a society can corrupt itself. If you would, take your Bible and look at Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. This is an ex ex excellent example 
of how a society corrupts itself. In Genesis chapter 6, and verse 1, we begin reading it like this. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And there's a very interesting way this was worded. It says, and they took them wise of all which they chose. There's an understanding here that these, these, uh, these sons of, uh, 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 of God who saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, they took them wise. There's an idea of violence there. They just took them. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God looks down at this. And this is what he sees. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made, made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, it talks about the generations of Noah, but I want to pick it back up in verse 11. So God says, I, I've had it with this earth. Look at verse 11. We see some key words. The earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. So I want you to point out, I want to point out two words there. It was corrupt. It was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So we see again, the, the earth was corrupt. It was filled with violence. God looks on the earth. He sees it's corrupt. And he sees that all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We see three words there that all come from the same Hebrew root. We see corrupt, we see violence, and we see destroy. And if you look at these verses, you'll see that the earth was corrupt. The earth had violence. Man was perpetrating that violence in this very corrupt earth. And we see that man is doing it, man is doing it, man is doing it, until you get down to verse 13, where God, at the end of it, he uses that same word. He says, I am going to destroy them. He inserts himself, and he says, look, this is what the earth is. It is so corrupt, it's actually destroying itself. I am going to take this snowball that is going down the hill and in an act of mercy, I'm going to push it down and I'm going to destroy it before it destroys itself. So when you look at the flood, some people say, how can a just God give a flood like that? Actually, that was a tremendous act of mercy. Could you imagine another 6,000 years of this? The chaos and the immorality... That was the society that Noah lived in. 
And I look at ours and I see our society. It hasn't changed. We're corrupting ourselves. Our society is devolving. So how do all these things, though, play out in our Christian worldview? How are we supposed to look at this? Well, we're going to look at first this issue of sexuality. And we need to have a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview of this. So what do we say about this? Now, we need to be careful to consider all sexual deviance is a signal of culture's rancor. And what do I mean by that? It's very easy for us as Christians to begin to point our finger and say, homosexuality is what's making us bad. Transgender is what's making us bad. No. There are things that have gone on in our churches. There are things that, uh, that, uh, that we have let go in our churches that are, that are, are just as, uh, as big contributors to the, to the society. We didn't actually talk about it because we had to skip a week, but if, if you looked at your syllabus, you would see a couple weeks ago we were supposed to talk about repentance. And I think there have been those who have repented. And there have done, been some th- people have done some things that, that have been really bad, and repented. But I'm also reminded that we need to get away from the idea that we have these special sins that are just worse than everything else. Sin is sin before God. And I know my capabilities and my failures and my sin, and I can't point my finger at others and say, ha ha, you're the one who's making society so bad. Because I know what I have done. But I also do know that we tend, as Christians even, who say, you know what, I am going to take a hard stand on sin, we tend to change our beliefs when sin manifests itself in our own lives or in the lives of those we love. I have many friends who took a very strong stand on homosexuality until they had a family member who had it. And I, I got to be careful. By the, but by the grace of God, there go I. But it's a challenge. And many of you might be sitting here and say, you know what, I, I hear what you're saying and, what you're, and I'm going to listen to you, but I know such and such. They're a good person. Because we do know that there is a difference between militant activists and humans who struggle with sexual sins. Not every person who struggles with their sexuality is out there raising a sign, running a picket, and there are some who are struggling. And so the tenor of this lecture tonight, it has to be one of lowered voices. Well, we're not screaming words at at people, and we'll get to the end of how this looks, but we got to lower our voices, and we have to ask ourselves, here's some questions that I want you to Ask yourself this evening, do homosexuals have the right to be human? 
What I mean by that is, and it kind of maybe come out as like as an excuse. What I'm saying though is, do they have the right to be treated as a human being? Do they have the right to be treated as they were also created in the image of God? Legally as a human, as an American, do they have rights? We've gotten so caught up in rights and what the court has to say that I think we've lost as Christians, and I'll say this again later, but we've lost our Christian charity. And we are so busy throwing opinions, and even we go to Leviticus and we're going to throw the Bible verse at them. And what does Paul say about that? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You're just loud noise without love. So here I want to give you four things. And just to make this easier, Marilyn, if you want to just, we can skip over going through, and we can just put all four of them up there if you see that slide. There you go. Um, I'm going to walk through these four things. We need to recognize the reality that fallen people have fallen desires. We mentioned this last week. This shouldn't surprise us. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Paul is clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we all once lived after the passions of our flesh. And we carried out the desires of the body and the mind like the rest of mankind. Desiring sin is natural for sinners. That includes sexual desires, heterosexual lust, and homosexual sin are equal. In fact, Titus 3.3 says that in our sin, we are all slaves to various passions and pleasures. Though creation is good, sex is good, our desires are distorted. We must and we cannot redefine sex according to our desires. That's what our culture has done. But instead, we need to be those who, are, who as saved Christians must depend on God to transform our desires. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we've, you've heard this verse. You know, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. We transform our desires in accordance with his will. So we must clearly state here from the beginning that same-sex sexual desires are wrong. But it's fallen people with fallen desires. Secondly, Scripture equips us to offer an answer to the questions. Someone may say, well, what, what, you know, what if they were born that way? Even if someone were born with desires contrary to the biblical teaching on sexuality and marriage, that doesn't invalidate what the Bible says about them. In fact... We were all born in sin. David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. All of us 
are born with selfish, sinful desires. So, do same-sex desires come from nature or from nurture? It could be both. The doctrine of original sin teaches that none of us are exempt. We don't have to be taught to desire to sin. You see what we're saying here when we say, well, what if they're born that way? Or, well, as I said, we're all born. I have four children. Five, sorry, Kendall. Five children. I have five children. I can't get to the point where I say, well, they do good sins. At least they're not that. I pray that God saves each one of their souls. Because I don't have to teach them to desire sin. Wicked longings are innate to our fallen condition. And at the same time, we are raised and nurtured in a sinful world. And here's what terrifies me about my children is they are being, it's being blasted in front of them as normal now. So you've got this sinful desire and now you're putting it on TV in front of them. You're seeing it on billboards. I'm telling you, there isn't a time when we'll say, hey, let's, we'll watch this movie or we'll see the TV show and it goes along great and everything's fine and then they'll put something in there. The world is inundating them with it because the world has an agenda. People are going to mislead us. And my children, they will see what the world has to offer. But they need, they need Christ. So third, let's move on. All sin. We must on one hand affirm that all sin makes us deserving of condemnation. Homosexuality is not the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. In fact, there are many believers who struggle with same-sex attraction and yet are actively seeking to live lives of holiness and submission to God's will. They're not a different class of Christian. They're not different than the adulterer. They're not different than the liar. They're not different than the, uh, uh, the thief. I'm sure we don't want to put up a billboard in this auditorium of all the secret sins that we have that you struggle with, that I struggle with. They're not a second-class citizen. I can't look down my nose and say, but they do that one. That's the one God doesn't like. Sin is sin. They're not dirtier than the rest of us. All of us are perverted, wicked, we have wicked, ungodly desires of which we all must repent. Christ died and rose to save all kinds of sinners. Whoever repents of their sin and trusts in him. At the same time, on the other hand, we shouldn't forget that homosexual activity is, particularly consequential, is a particularly consequential denial of God's design. Romans 1 describes homosexual sin as the outflow of a wholesale rejection of God's lordship as creator. Homosexual behavior takes the institution of marriage, which is intended to portray Christ in the church, and it distorts that beautiful picture. Fourth, 
Our posture towards believers who experience same-sex attraction must be one of compassion, kindness, gentleness, and we must speak the truth in love. And when it comes to speaking with non-believers, our friends who may have embraced or endorsed homosexuality, those family members, there's a whole other class and another class we could do about how that might be helpful. But here, we're thinking of how to care for believers who are seeking to walk in purity. The ultimate goal for anyone with a same-sex desire isn't to develop heterosexual attraction and just go get married because then it'll fix you. Although God may do that through them. Remember, one could be attracted to people of the opposite sex and still sin by lusting after them. So the goal isn't, hey, let's just make them heterosexual. The goal is holiness. The goal is singleness to the glory of God. Whether even that's for a lifetime or for a season, if, if God brings a person of the opposite sex into the life of, a, of someone who is a homosexual and they can commit themselves sexually in marriage after that, they, they, let God do that work. Holiness. And so these are my, these are the things that we have to say or what I want to point out about how do we deal with uh, sexuality? We must recognize that people, the reality that fallen people have fallen desires. Scriptures give us the answer. We must affirm that sins make us deserving of con condemnation. And our posture towards believers who experience these struggles must be compassion, kindness, gentleness, and speaking the truth in love. Now, if you look at our, if you look at our, 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 our slide there, you'll see it says a Christian worldview of sexuality, marriage, and gender. I do think that there is a progression here. And the progression is that uh, people who struggle with sexuality, uh, that's the way God created us. He created us male and female, but then he had a purpose of why he did that. And so we move into marriage. I remember where I was. I was up at uh, Henderson Hall, which is a base just outside the Pentagon. Uh, and I was, uh, had just finished um, some sort of training. And, and I was sitting there at this restaurant uh, waiting uh, for lunch or something. I forget what I was doing. But I was sitting there waiting. They had a TV on. And I remember the Obergefell uh, decision, which was the decision where they repealed the Defense of Marriage Act. And they, well, they said it was unconstitutional and that anybody, any state the state should all recognize same-sex marriage. Now, I remember where I was. And, of course, everybody thought, oh, the world has come to an end. But I, I want to share a thought with you, and I think as Christians we need to get out of this idea that marriage, and I'm going to share a word with you that I learned this week, we look at marriage as juridical. I'll say it again. We look at marriage as juridical. J-U-R-I-D-I-C-A-L. Juridical. That's a fancy word. What does that mean? It means as we look at marriage as uh, relating to the judicial proceedings and the administration of the law. So you decide you want to get married. You've got a couple options, right? You can go have, and this is what the Navy sailors say, I'm going to have a church wedding, 
or I could go down to the justice of the peace and I could just get married. And what we've allowed in our culture and what Christians have allowed is we have allowed those to be equal with each other. We have said, oh, okay, you go down and get married with the justice of the peace or you can have a church wedding. It's all the same. Legally, yes, it is. In fact, when I do a wedding, at the end of it, I say something like this. By the power invested in me by the Commonwealth of Virginia, because I have been licensed in Pocosin, York County, to go ahead and officiate weddings in the state of Virginia, uh, Commonwealth of Virginia. And so I say, by the power invested, that's what that means, the power invested in you. A lot of people have this power. The justice of the peace has this power. A judge has this power. A captain of a ship has this power. And clergy have this power. And now I've found you can just go online and get this power. Uh, it's, it's pretty easy to get this power. But as, as, as churches, we look and say, oh, okay, well, the state is the one who determines what marriage is. And my question tonight is, is there a way to decouple the state's legalization of same-sex marriage and the church's biblical responsibility to oppose it? Now, that's a loaded question. Can we separate how the state has said, okay, we're going to legalize same-sex marriage and our biblical responsibility to oppose it. Can we separate those two things? Now, some say no. They'll say, well, here's my question, though. What does a secular state, what's it going to do? Of course it's going to legalize same-sex marriage. And then I have this question. I asked you it earlier. Do those that uh, claim to be homosexual, do they have human rights? We have for so long enjoyed our marriage tax credits. And we think, oh, well, I should get this tax credit. I think the state needs to get out of the marriage business. Just get out of it. We don't need tax credits because they are going to, if they're going to say, here's what we're going to reward for marriage, guess what they're going to try to do? They're going to try to define marriage. But here's the reality. I don't care if you give them same-sex marriage gives, has legal right. I don't care. You cannot de redefine marriage any more than we can redefine a triangle to have four sides. Here's why. The dictionary has defined marriage. And it defines it like this. This is the New Oxford American Dictionary. It defines marriage like this. The legally or formally recognized union. That is a very, very important word. The legally or formally recognized union of two people as partners in a personal relationship. And then it puts in parentheses, historically and in some jurisdictions, specifically a union between a man and a woman. We can't just throw the word union around and then redefine that either, but that's what we've done. Union, according to the state, is just a coming together. But that's, there's more to it, and the Bible tells us exactly what it's about. 
So we need to go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to see what this is all about. We, though, need to be careful with what we want the state to require. So let me ask you, have you ever thought about it this way? Should same-sex couples be barred from special tax laws? Should they be barred from legal arrangements to deal with property and medicine? Does a gay person have the right to pursue peaceful human interests? Should they be able to buy? And What should they not be allowed to do? We want to be very careful where we go down this road of what we say, well, they can't have this. And here's what I'm trying to say is we got to go back to what do we mean by that word union? The state has a definition of it. And we have so long enjoyed the benefits of the state that we've accepted their definition. When in reality, if you look at it and you say, okay, state, if you're going to have that definition of union, that's not really marriage, though. So I really don't care what tax write-offs you give them. I really don't care if they can leave in their will. And that was the whole issue. Can I leave in my will to my same-sex partner this, uh, this property, and will that be honored? I don't care. I do become very libertarian in this. I don't care because you have defined union in a certain way. And I say no. Union has a more nuanced meaning than what the state has. So if the state, if you're going to define it union, then okay, you've got that. That's wrong. or that's, that's the way you define it. But let's go back and let's see what the Bible has to say about union. And we can look at what the Bible has to say about union, and then we can say, hey, the state's never going to get it right. So what does the Bible have to say? Genesis chapter 1 tells us. Remember it said, and God said, let us make man in our image after likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created him, male and female created he them. Three ideas are very important here. Three preliminary ideas that I want to give to you right now. First of all, we've got to go back to this idea of Imago Dei, the image bearers. To be an image bearer means we are reflecting the image or likeness of another. In this case, man and woman reflect the character of God. Note that both man and woman are made in God's image. He says, in the image of God made he him. So he makes Adam. Male and female created he them. And really, if we see that word man in verses 26 and 27, it is the generic, all-encompassing term for mankind. And it's spelled out in verse 27, male and female created he them. One very important implication of both man and woman being image bearers is the fact that they are both equal in dignity and value in the eyes of God. Right, <coughs> excuse me, right here in the first chapter of the Bible, it is important to equal, to equal dignity and value of man and woman before we get to the difference in roles later on. I want to make sure I'm very clear that both man and woman are created in the image of God and both have value. Not only are we created in the image of God, but there's this idea of dominion. One of being, part of being an image bearer involves serving as God's representatives in the Garden of Eden. Now, we see this in the text twice in verses 26 and 27. 
as mankind is labeled as image bearer and then shortly afterwards is called on to rule. The principle here is one of stewardship. God is the owner and creator of creation, and man and woman are appointed as his divine caretakers. To be God's representatives means to give expression of God's lordship in the garden and in all of life. Yet, as we'll see later, man carries the ultimate responsibility as the head of the family. So, image bearer. They are to have dominion. And then find my last, first, third preliminary that I want to make sure we understand is this idea of procreation. One way in which man and women can rule, so they're supposed to have dominion over the earth, and guess what they're supposed to do? Subdue it. Why do I have five children? Because we're going to take over the world. Be fruitful and multiply. We rule the earth by filling the entire planet. And here's reality. I don't just have children to have children. I have children so that there are five more, by God's grace, worshipers of Almighty God. They are also image bearers to reflect back to God his own glory. Now, I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying they're born Christians. They have to be converted. But my goodness, we do have a population crisis in this world. And I'm not saying families need to have 10 and 15 children. Because we remember those days when they had those so they could work the farms. But have children. So that they, we have more believers on this earth. Let's go now over to Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took man, we're looking at verse 15. And the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the Lord said, Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called, him, called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all, the ca all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Here's where we see the marital relationship. And we see there is a particular structure to it. What's the relationship between the passage I read in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2? Well, Genesis 2 is more details 
a more detailed account of Genesis 1. It's almost like it's a flashback and explains things in greater detail. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, Adam is entrusted with a task and the authority to carry out that task. Before the woman is on the scene, God puts man in the, in the garden to dress it and to keep it. This was more than just doing minimal work and going home. This was going to be Adam's entire life. As God's representative, Adam was called to make the garden flourish and grow. In verse 18 of chapter 2, not, he says, It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to be, make a help meet for him. Now, what does that word alone mean? And I think there's two possible meanings. The first is what we traditionally say, Hey, this is someone who is going to be Adam's companion. Companion. But I think... There's a more deep, there is a more, there is a deeper meaning here of that word alone. And it's not just a friend. It's not just someone to, hey, be beside me as we go through life together. That word, a help meet or suitable for him, is this idea of someone who completes him. And I want to share another word, and it's the word complementary. Complementary. Now, it wasn't like Adam needed someone to say, Adam, your hair looks nice today. Adam, man, you really did dress the garden today. I mean, you did it great. I mean, I saw you out there tilling the ground. Good job. And as men, we know that those things are very important to us. We need those compliments. This isn't compliment with an I. This is complimentary with an E. C-O-M-P-L-E. M-E-N-T-A-R-I-T-Y, complementary or complementarity. It is someone who completes them. We read our modern understanding of loneliness in the term of alone, and we deem Eve's purpose to providing fellowship, and we think, oh, that's what she was there for. And while she certainly does provide fellowship, there's more to it. God saw that man was unable to fulfill the task on his own. He needed a partner who was complimentary, who completed him, someone who would balance his weaknesses and strengthen his strengths. We come to understand this complimentary, complimentary role further by the term used for woman in the second half of the verse. It was a help meet for him. I shared this with our class in our, our adult Bible fellowship. I I really do not enjoy when people say, oh, she made a help me. That's not the word. It is a help meet for him, suitable for him. We wouldn't go around saying, oh, she needs, he needed a help suitable. It was a help. That's the noun. And then he describes it. Someone that was suitable for Adam. You can think of it this way. God looks at all his creation and says, okay, I got Adam. We've got male and female of everything else, but there's nothing here for Adam. We'll make something that's suitable for him. What does it mean? Helpers suggest that it is to assist or aid. This is someone who's going to help him in his task of fulfilling dominion. Meet means 
She is complementary to the man in a way that the rest of creation could not do. What is the point of the story in Genesis 2, 19 through 20? In naming the animals, man comes to see that there is no suitable partner for him in all of this creation. Now, what does that mean? Being a suitable helper, being a helpmeet for him does not mean the wife was a slave to the husband. We can read Proverbs 31 and find that that's not true. It does not mean the wife never has an opinion nor gives advice. We see some passages of Scripture where there's women who give excellent advice to their husbands. Proverbs 31 again, Acts 18, Judges 13. It does not mean the wife becomes some sort of wallflower who folds up and allows her abilities to lie dormant. It does not mean the wife is inferior to the husband. She's a partner, a teammate, a co-laborer in this garden. In the context of this passage, what is the wife being called to help with? The wife is called to come alongside of him and help him with the grand task of being God's representative in the garden. Marriage is not just about specific big decisions, but it's an entire orientation of the wife's life. The wife is engaged in every area of life with her husband, helping him to be faithful to the massive calling on his life. You know what Adam had to do? He had to subdue and dominate the world. That's a big job. And he has Eve to come alongside to help him. So, and I'll be done here. I know we're over time, but let me finish up here real quick. While the man was oriented to the task of dominion, the terminology help meet for him suggests that she is oriented then to who? Him. Her orientation is to Adam. Not to the tasks. She's to help Adam. That sets up a priority in her relationship. It is now first to Adam, then to the garden. There's some New Testament authors who look back at the story, and as they interpret the creation text, they affirm this orientation of woman to man. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul does this. And we see some implications here. And let me share with you four implications. First is, in Genesis 2, we see the first indicator of God's desire to give, is to give, in men, to give men the authority to lead in marriage. Authority was given to the husband to lead. The task, Genesis 2.15, is assigned to man, and the prohibitions are explained to the man. We, you know, when, if we look at this, we see that God never tells Eve, don't eat of that tree. And I have an opinion on that, too. I think that uh, when Adam said to Eve, he was probably like I would do with my children. Hey, you see that tree? We don't eat of it. We don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Okay, I won't. And so when Satan says, she says to Satan, hey, do we eat? We don't even, we don't touch that. We don't even look at that. And everybody says, oh, Eve changed the word of God. She didn't get it from God. She got it from Adam. 
So we see that the first, that God was, gave him the prohibitions. That he explains it to the man. This is well before Adam, or Eve is even on the scene. Naming is a sign of authority. We see that also. So man is given the responsibility of naming the animals. He also names the woman. So we see that God gave man, the husband, the authority to lead in marriage. Hey, our time is done. We'll pick this up next week. We've got four more implications we'll look at for marriage, and then we're going to connect it as we look at, we've talked about the sexuality, and then we're going to look at marriage, and we're going to see how gender plays a role in that as well. And we're going to see what society has done with it. And so bring your notes back next week, and we'll pick it up right here with our second implication here that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Any thoughts or questions? We'll take time. If anybody has anything they'd like to add before we go. Yes, sir. The truth about same-sex marriage by Panther and Malusia. Okay. Yes. In fact, I just read an article he wrote uh, on it. He does. He handles it excellently with compassion and uh, and kindness, and yet he is biblical. <laughs> he doesn't back down, and it is. That's a uh, uh, Lutzer who was up at Moody Church there for uh, for years. Um, and you still probably hear him on uh, on. Bible Broadcasting Network as well. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'd stay away from them. <laughs> so that's you bring up an excellent point, and uh, and we we won't get into that. But he talks about shotgun weddings, and I think what you mean by is you know um, we have we've set up our our children sometimes for failure by saying, hey, okay, you committed this sin, you will now get married. And we just created a marriage that is just on the rocks from the beginning. And so I will stay away from some of that stuff because I am a dad with two daughters. Yeah, two. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I won't speak on authority on any of that. Uh, but, uh, but be careful about how much as a parent you intrude on the will of God for your child's life. I believe he gives you wisdom, and I don't want to demean that either. Um, and, and I trust your children will honor you. Uh, but uh, uh, just to get married because, I mean, that was the thing. That was you get married because that's the thing to do. And, uh, and, and it may be more danger than, it, than, it, than is good. But, uh, but then again, I've seen marriages that that's the way they started. And 50 years later, they're still doing it. They're still good. I, and I think that's God's grace in any of that. Um, uh, and if you ever want to see how to live in a horrible marriage, just watch Fiddler on the Roof, and, uh, <laughs> and they survived. <laughs> but, uh, but there was there's a time where you just gotta you gotta have some humility as the you know that. What does the Bible say? Love covereth a multitude of sins. All right, let's close in prayer. Generally, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the things you've taught us this evening. I pray that you'd help us as we continue to look into this. And uh, uh, Lord, I pray that we would not let society determine what we believe and how we view marriage. But Father, help us to look into the Word of God. You told us. Pray that we would desire to see it there. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-2000.
We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.